This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Manic indeed, a merger Monday, some might say, many would say, because the amount of deals, the size of deals getting done, uh, really ramping up here toward the end of the year. Let's break the deals down, figure out what it means for the broader market. Ed Hammond is here, uh, deals expert. Did you get any sleep this weekend? It was a busy weekend, but the good news is it will probably be a slightly less busy Thanksgiving. (laughs) Right. And so the neither of these the sort of big deals that we're talking about the schwab td ameritrade or the lvmh tiffany not big shockers uh in a lot of ways you guys have done some great reporting on both what uh what do you take away from them though now that you've had a chance to sort of synthesize it listen to how they're framing them etc well they're very different kinds of deals i mean let's start with the uh schwab deal that's a a deal that's happening because of really, you know, ongoing headwinds that that industry is facing. Obviously, the zero fees is a problem uh, if you're a company like TD Ameritrade and you're trying to grow. So you see those deals happening because of the pressure. Something like LVMH Tiffany, the the entirely opposite reason. Tiffany's is a great company. As we know, it's one of the only sort of real luxury brands in the U.S., at least as far as Europeans are concerned. Um, LVMH have looked at it a number of times over the years. They've always thought of it as it, it's not a must-have, it's a like-to-have, but now they're a 205 $206 billion market cap company. Guess what? You can have a like-to-have company that's close to $20 billion. Yeah. All right. So there's that going on. Um, and I do wonder, you know, do you guys then start to think about, okay, who's next? And here we had a good conversations last week about this, that you really will be at a disadvantage if you're a smaller player in this space now. Yeah, I think that's right. And and look, smaller player is obviously relative because um, everyone now is, is so much smaller than LVMH, yeah. both in terms of the pure scale of the company, but also just the number of big brands it has under that, that umbrella. Uh, so I think the likes of Richemont are going to be looking at this and they're probably quite worried. I mean, what does it mean for them? What does it mean for their ability to compete globally with LVMH? And is this something they can go and acquire? There was always speculation that they maybe would show up in this process and try and outbid. Uh, as far as we know, that didn't happen. They were never anywhere around it. I'm sure Tiffany's in you know, some capacity reached out to them and tried to see if there was potential interest there, but it, it doesn't sound like those conversations did go anywhere. Ed, what does it mean? And I know Tiffany is certainly a global brand and increasingly a market like Asia is really, really important to them. But um, when the Tiffany CEO was here at our The Year Ahead luxury event, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I do wonder what like an iconic American brand though at its heart, what does it mean now that it's part of really a European conglomerate? Well, I think it, it is an iconic American brand, and in a way, that's its great strength, right? It's when people think of Tiffany's, they think of, uh, they think of the, the fabulous store on, in, on, on Fifth. They right. think of the movie. It has that sort of huge resonance. Um, but, it, but it's a global company. The people, people around the world like the product, as you mentioned, Asia is obviously a huge market for them, by far their fastest growing region. Um, and LVMH is a, you know, essentially a holding company for similar global yeah. brands that maybe are based in France, based in Italy, based in other parts of the world, but they are, wherever there is affluence, wherever there is emerging wealth, that's where they do well. And that's why we're seeing all of these brands, all of the LVMH brands are doing particularly well at the moment in China and to some extent in Hong Kong, although obviously that's slightly imperiled of late. 
So what does this tell us about the state of deal making here in, you know, now late November 2019? Put it in perspective as in terms of sort of where we've been up to this point in the year and what we may see uh, going to the end. It's it's happened again. We had a lot of people writing off M&A for 2019 <laughs> saying that fourth quarter was going to be a dud and then we'd probably go into 2020 and nothing would happen because of the election. It's been anything but. We've had another very, very busy end of the year no sign at all of that slowing down look i think there is some uh, argument to be made a lot of these deals got announced this week because it's thanksgiving people don't want to go into the holidays with a load of stuff overhanging but it's much much busier now than it was a month ago and a month ago yeah. people were saying you know the wheels have slightly come off we saw some big deals that didn't close some more risky things you look at some of the rumors that are out there uh, walgreens to take private walgreens potentially the biggest lbo in history we know kkr around that there, are, there is obvious confidence both uh, at the corporate level in the market but also at the financing level well that's what i wonder like what it tells us about where we are in our market or economic cycle here does it does it give you any indication i mean if we start when we're seeing deals like this what does it say well, it's, it's interesting because you can take really different uh, or divergent views on it, I should say. Some people say, look, it shows that we're at the very end of the cycle. People are rushing to get these crazy things done before, you know, everything freezes up and there's no opportunities. Other people say, actually, what it shows is that, yes, we have very high stock valuations, so people are using a lot of stock, but the companies themselves feel confident. They feel that, you know, they've pulled a lot of the internal levers for growth, but it's still a good enough market to go out, execute very large transactions, even if that means taking on substantial amounts of debt. Who's winning from the Wall Street perspective? The boutiques did pretty well this weekend. Uh, you know, we saw Centerview obviously were front and center on the um, on the Tiffany of MH deal, and then uh, Paul Talman's firm PJT were the lead on the uh, on the Schwab Ameritrade deal. So look, it's it's obviously always a good time for the for the smaller independent advisors, but I think particularly of late, it seems that they are back on a run. Those are deals that you can really hang your hat on for a year, and also presumably you know this much better than I to go out and sort of shill your wares to uh, others and essentially saying look I got I got these relatively complicated deals over the finish line I think that's right but I do think and this is worth noting and, and as an M&A reporter is obviously great uh, part of the pitch of the boutiques was always that our deals don't leak because there's so few yeah. people well guess what the, all these deals have been leaking <laughs> these were so the leakiest deals around exactly. in a lot of ways are you anticipating some more deal flow in the remaining month of the year yep uh, as far as we can uh, gather everything is still sort of full steam ahead everyone is working very hard it sounds like there are going to be a few more big ones between now and the end of the year. Very cool stuff. Ed Hammond, thank you, thank you. Really appreciate it. Ed Hammond, wrapping up uh, what has turned out to be a very busy Monday when it comes to deal flow. He is our deals reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. By the end of this century, check this out, Jason, a third of the world's population and a greater fraction of its young people will be African. It's why many investors are eyeing the market, not just for its size and potential, but also for its growing tech ecosystem. Back with us to talk about just that is Jake Bright. He's TechCrunch contributor. He's also author of The Next Africa, an emerging continent, becomes a global powerhouse. He joins us back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to be back with us. Great to be back. You know, we do talk a lot about investment, and we talk about specifically the raw materials or raw minerals uh, and kind of staking your claims uh, to what's to come from Africa. You're taking a look specifically at the tech ecosystem. Are you talking about kind of the tech community overall? I'm assuming it's a growing one in Africa. Yeah, Africa's had a boom in um, tech startup growth and VC investment. Uh, The time span has really been about five to seven years. So this is relatively new. It's not shaping up everywhere, but there are some tech hubs that are becoming notable. 
mostly Nigeria and West Africa. Um, these are places that are becoming centers of startup formation, of entrepreneurs um, going home, of VC investment. So it's Nigeria, the top hubs are Nigeria, South Africa, uh, Kenya primarily, with some others on the side, Ethiopia, Ghana. Um, and, you know, what, what types of kind of startups? I'm, you know, I know, like, I feel like the financial industry finds a different way right. of, you know, tackling the emerging markets, and you can find some interesting things in that arena. Well, the big spending's gone on in, in fintech yeah. and e-commerce and, and internet services, but what you have right now is, is you have these formalizing economies in these, in these hubs, and even though uh, fintech and e-commerce and some obvious um, startup sectors have gotten a lot of money, you basically have this new class of young African entrepreneurs that are descending into every possible sector you can imagine, um, from ride hailing to education to multiplying you know, health services on mobile platforms. So um, it's all wide open and, and every sector is open right now in Africa. And so where does the funding come from? Where are they finding uh, willing venture capitalists? Well, this is what's um, you know, news over the, the last week is that um, Primarily, a lot of funding has come from European and U.S. investors with some African angels. But over the last quarter, uh, I've tracked this, uh, China has come in to, to invest nearly a quarter of a billion dollars in VC in African fintech, uh, almost all entirely in companies that are based in Nigeria with outward growth strategies from there. And why this is notable is that um, that's roughly one-fourth of all the venture capital that went to startups in 2018. And previous to this, China has had an elevated engagement with Africa, but it's been mostly related to trade mm -hmm. and trade finance and building things and bricks and mortar stuff. We've been waiting for China to go all in on African digital in full. Uh, and these last several investment rounds in fintech um, kind of indicate that that's happened or happening. Why, why is this? Is it of concern? Is it of interest? How would you describe it? Well, it runs a gamut. I, I should say a little bit more about the rounds. So you have um, an, a group of Afri or Chinese investors who the biggest round is just recently into Opera, the internet company. Um, they've started to launch services startups in Nigeria. So they have a payment startup called Opay, uh, which a group of Chinese investors, Sequoia China, um, Source Code Capital, invested $120 million in Opera's Opay um, just in mm -hmm. this last month. Um, and what's happening is, is you're seeing um, this start to expand into other areas. It's creating different dynamics with competition on the continent with existing players, including Opera's going to expand Opay into Kenya, which has been Africa's um, you know, capital for mobile money. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to, I mean, when it comes to what, what's to look at here, um, one, there's more competition. Two, there's more investment for uh, African startups overall. And that all sounds good. That all sounds good, but then it enters this complicated part of Africa's involvement in, um, or China's involvement in Africa, which right. has been somewhat controversial. To be objective, um, the, the conversation around China and Africa runs kind of the, the extreme would be that it's neocolonialism and that China's taking over Africa. Um, on the positive end, Africans will often tell you that China is actually meeting us where we want to be. They're offering us money. We need infrastructure. They're building stuff. They're mm -hmm. helping us with bridges. And a lot of people bring lecture, but they don't bring the funds. But there is concerns about data privacy. We've just got about yes. 25 seconds yes. left. Yes, right? and, and this, that's this the concern. Pivot to digital 
creates a whole new uh, topic in China and Africa. When you get to the concerns with Huawei, when you get to Chinese investors having major stakes in big consumer platforms that run a lot of data and, and, and fintech information, um, I think the continent's still getting its hands around that yeah. now after just grasping the, the amount of the investment and who's doing what and where. Well, uh, very interesting space to watch for sure. Jake Bright, contributor to TechCrunch. He's also the author of the book, The Next Africa, an Emerging Continent Becomes a Global Powerhouse, keeping us up to date on all things happening there. So Carol Master, a couple stats for you that really surprised me. The worldwide market size for type 2 diabetes, $827 billion. One in eight healthcare dollars, this blew me away, are spent on diabetes. That's unbelievable. It's such a huge problem, right? It's a huge problem. And a lot of people, smart people, trying to attack it in terms of treatments and Mm -hmm. medicines and whatnot. Nadav Kudron is here with us. He is one of those people. He's the CEO of Ormed Pharmaceuticals based here in New York City. Great to see you. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. This feels like a big deal. This feels like a big breakthrough. We're talking about an oral pill, a, a, a new treatment for type 2 diabetes. Tell us about it. Absolutely. I mean, there was an article, a big article today, that from 2005 till today, there was no major breakthrough in the way we treat diabetes. Now, what we do in Oramed is we take the insulin, which currently can only be administered as an injection, and we have a technology to deliver it orally. So imagine that the diabetics population can take insulin orally, which is better from compliance and just physiologically a much better way to do it. So is it as effective? Where are you in that process? So we just finished two weeks ago a phase 2B. So basically it was successful, safe, and efficacy was great. And we're now moving into phase three and then register it as a drug under the FDA. So what have you seen though so far? Is it apples to apples in terms of injections? So it's a little bit of a different way of looking at it. The idea is that with oral insulin, the patients are going to start the administration of the oral insulin much earlier on. And by doing so, you'll have a much better control of the diabetes. So if you th- What do you mean much earlier? You mean in terms of having the disease that they'll st- they'll start on insulin earlier? So they'll start with oral insulin. Well, how, let, let, let's look how it works today. Right. Okay. So today you go to your doctor and tells you, listen, I'm sorry to tell you your sugar level is too high. You start with diet and exercise. I'm talking about type two. Right. Diet and exercise. Then you move into different oral agents that are not insulin. And eventually the last resort is that you need to inject ah. insulin. We're going to change the whole thing. We're going to come and say, okay, forget it. Start with the diet and exercise for sure. Best drug ever. But then take Ormond's oral insulin, okay? And then you're going to be in a much better control for so many more years and you will benefit and the entire society will benefit. How do we know that? Because I've known a fair amount of people who have had diabetes. And I mean, yeah, the insulin is not, nobody looks forward to that. That's kind of considered the last step of having to do that. So if you can manage it up to that point. So my concern is if you start with insulin early, how is that a good thing? So even today would be a good thing, but many people are afraid of the needle. Mm -hmm. The reason that it's a good thing is because if you think about it, how our body works, let's go back to our biology class from third grade. We have the pancreas making the insulin into the liver. The liver takes it into the the bloodstream. When we give it orally, it goes into the liver. So we mimic the physiological way that the body works, unlike the injection that goes directly into the bloodstream. That's why it's much more advantageous for us to use the oral insulin versus the injection in most cases. So you mentioned that there's been no big breakthrough in almost 15 years. Why did this take so long? 
Well, welcome to the world of the FDA. So even us at Oramed that we're making, we're taking the same insulin that was discovered almost 100 years ago, and we just have a safe technology to deliver it orally. We still have to go through phase one, phase two, phase three, almost as long as developing a new drug. And so why, I, I guess I'll ask the, the same question in a slightly different way. Why didn't someone come up with this sooner? Because, I mean, like Carol, I've known a lot of people. I had good friends in college, you know, who as teenagers, you know, had to inject themselves uh, with with insulin. It's really a a very difficult thing to do. Uh, Why didn't this breakthrough happen decades ago? So you should ask yourself, there's so many injections currently that we take as an injection. Wouldn't you rather take them as a pill? A hundred percent. So the answer is that many times when you take a small peptide, which is a protein, if you're going to swallow it, if I will take the insulin now without Oramet's technology and I will try to swallow it, it will just break down. Uh. So we have a technology that knows how to protect it and how to come with the issue of the size of, 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 of the gut wall in order to deliver it into the, into the liver. So this is a delivery. You're essentially solving the delivery problem. Exactly. Here. And I can use it for many other things. I can use it for insulin, for flu vaccine, for many other things. But insulin is the holy grail. Do you need the same dosage? Because I know some of the concerns have been that if it's going to some extent through your digestive system, that you kind of pull out some of the insulin so that you're going to ultimately need to in, to take more for it to be effective. So where are we on that? So we absolutely need to take more than an injection. But the most fascinating thing that we see of this the recent trial that we did, less is more. Meaning when we gave less insulin, it was even more effective than when we gave more insulin. How is that? So How do you explain that science? We believe that? that what happens is the liver does an amazing job. It regulates the secretion of the insulin and regulates the secretion of the glucose. By getting insulin directly into the liver, we signal to the liver, hey, here is insulin, so it stops the excessive production of glucose by the liver, hence the magic that with a small amount of insulin, orally, you can reduce the glucose level drastically. So we talk a lot about sort of the health and well-being, especially here in the yeah. United States and, you know, obesity rates going up and, and diabetes obviously is always tied into the sort of broader health. And you alluded to this earlier. What else is being done, do you feel like, sort of more, more holistically, literally and figuratively to combat diabetes at this point? So let me start with the negative. I think we're just not doing enough to have an holistic picture and to see how as a society, we're spending almost a trillion dollars a year on diabetes, okay? But it's easier for the payers to get their money, it's easier for, for, for the doctors to subscribe straight drugs. What do we do as a society to look at the holistic picture and to make sure that we can have more healthier and a little bit less cost for us to keep ourselves as a healthy society? So let me follow up on that because it's, it's a really important point. I feel like we talk about mm-hmm. it a lot. Uh, is this just that the economics are, for lack of a better term, sort of perverted across the healthcare spectrum, that it's easier to essentially get everything paid for when it's a treatment rather than if it's preventative? So I think it's a few things. I think number one, it's it's each one looks at its own perspective. So if you were the insurance company, you want to make your money the way you make it, and that's it. If you were the doctor and you were the patient, and each one looks at his own way. The government doesn't come. Nobody comes and say, wait, wait, wait a second. The whole thing doesn't make sense. I'll give you one quick example from South Africa. A few years ago, and I think it's coming to America as well, a guy who started an insurance company in South Africa, and he basically said, if you're going to exercise, which is the best drug ever invented in the world, you know, your insurance costs are going to cost less. Right. 
So simple things like that will encourage people to keep themselves in a much healthier position. So realistically, just got 30 seconds here, as you guys go through trials, when do you anticipate that this would actually be approved and on the market? Okay, so we finished, Oramed finished the phase 2B two weeks ago. Um, next, next year, early next year, we're going to meet with the FDA, start the phase three. Phase three should take two years or so, another year of registration, and then we should have it in the market here. I should say that we already have a partner in China, and it's probably going to get registered in China before the United States. The oral insulin wow. will reach China first. All right, interesting All right. stuff. Um, really good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Nadav um, Kidron, thank you so much. He's Chief Executive Officer of Ormed Pharmaceuticals. The ticker here in the U.S. is ORMP. They're based in New York and, of course, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Monday. So Wall Street, yeah, they're looking to do things increasingly different, specifically the trading firms looking to get into gaming and sports betting markets. Let's talk about this story. It's in the double issue of the magazine that's currently on newsstands at Bloomberg.com and online. Bloomberg News investing reporter Annie Massa is with us. She wrote it. Uh, also with us is Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, back from his tour around the world. No, just halfway around the world <laughs> and then back. Uh, both of them in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And, you know, great story, timely story. I feel like with everything that's going on with a lot of the online trading firms in particular, Annie, kind of walk us through it. Sure. We took a look at how some Wall Street firms in limited ways are starting to creep in and test the waters of how they can get involved in sports betting or, and the market that's growing there. So what happened was a year ago, the U.S. Supreme Court lifted a federal ban on sports betting. And as a result, there's more attention being paid uh, to this area as more and more states legalize the practice. And that's just speaking about the U.S. side of this, right? Like there's always been sort of like an international interest. How, how do they do compare? Yes. Yeah, so in the UK, this has always been a legal and very embraced practice. So um, one of the firms that we write about, Susquehanna, has a uh, division called Nelly Analytics that they started out of Dublin that actually participates on some of the online betting exchanges. And they view it almost as like a market making capacity out there where they're taking the other side of trades that people are placing on these online exchanges. And so what's in it for the exchanges? Because we have, Carol mentioned this at the top of the show, we spoke with Adina Friedman about this for our Business Week talk segment, just bringing it all together, uh, a few months ago. And they have a real enthusiasm for this, I guess in part because they got the technology. Exactly. NASDAQ's really excited about this, and they're selling technology to various kinds of sports betting uh, exchanges. So they license out their tech to a couple of different horse uh, race betting venues around the world. And also over the summer, they struck a deal to provide some technology to a UK based um, company that allows you to bet on the um, on players in soccer games. And I have to ask, how much money is in this? <laughs> so by Wall Street standards, it's not that much money necessarily, especially in the US where it's such a fragmented regulatory landscape still. We've seen estimates about of about $17 billion or so. So, you know, not too many <laughs> huge Wall Street firms would be like jumping at the chance to own that market. But as a side hustle, it could be cool. Side hustle. I love that. Because I was going to say, why do it, right? It's not that much money. But why not? But if you're a smaller why firm, why not? And, and the idea, though, here is like, okay, only 17 today, but like maybe <laughs> right. that's going to like double. And then, you know, maybe eventually 
A, you get an advantage before anybody else has, and then, and then you know maybe you're actually like you're scaling an operation as things start to get lucrative. Exactly. So what's um, Susquehanna is kind of an interesting shop because they they're very secretive. They are also into other games, things like <laughs> poker, which you've written about before. So how does this square with their overall strategy? So this has been something, they're, they've been interested in sports betting at Susquehanna for a very long time, even just as an extracurricular activity. This Nelly Analytics division came up around um, about 2017 or so. It's named after Jeff Yass, one of the co-founders' dogs, as a matter of fact. Um, so it's a kind of cool uh, side venture for them and something that they're passionate about uh, on the side as well. All right, so while we have you here, we've got to ask you, a lot going on in the mm-hmm. investing world um, <laughs> right now. Yeah, there's uh, this deal that seems like it wasn't yeah, going to happen. Now exactly. it's happening. And now it's happening. What do you just, you know, we got a couple minutes left. What do you make of it? What deal could you possibly be talking <laughs> right. about? Hey, there were a few this, this <coughs> day. There's a lot going on. <laughs> um, yes. So Charles Schwab has made it official and they're um, buying TD Ameritrade for about $26 billion. And it's really a deal that's going to combine, um, you know, two huge retail brokers in an increasingly crunched industry. Um, Last month, we saw the huge wave of brokerages spurred on by Schwab um, going to zero on their trading commissions. So this is just another step. This consolidation is just another step showing how rough it is out there. Fair to say we may be reading about this in Bloomberg Business Week. I mean, Uh. you're going to be reading about it in these pages. And here's the thing, like it actually makes you think that there's going to be just more consolidation coming. You know, like this is noteworthy for sure. Schwab is huge. TD's huge. Together they're going to get bigger. But like who says that it's over yet, right? There's there's still more yeah, things out there. There's more companies. And is it just about online trading? I mean, we've all been saying, okay, so how do they make money? I was hearing uh, an interview this morning on surveillance, Bloomberg Surveillance, that talked about their role as a custodian here for registered investment advisors. Is it all about that business? What's it about? That's right. It consolidates some of the same RIA customers at at TD Ameritrade also apply to Schwab. So they say that they can kind of draw out those um, efficiencies uh, because, you know, on the retail side, also on the uh, RIA side. So they both have these custody services. All right. Well, and it's the but it's the consequences of all these trades going to zero, right? Exactly. The moment that you know commissions disappear, then there's going to be carnage, and and it's actually it's kind of amazing it's taken this long, frankly, because now it's a bloodbath. Well, and this is what Chuck Schwab kicked off like back in the 1970s. Your and your interview, right, where he hinted at consolidation. He did indeed. Hinted. He actually said it. Right. He actually said it. (laughs) Annie Massa, (laughs) investing reporter for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Joel Weber. He's back in New York City, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Monday. Just got about 12 minutes left in today's trading day, and it is time for the drive to the close. Dryden Pence is back with us. Economist. 
<laughs> excuse me, and Chief Investment Officer at Pence Wealth Management. A little of the uh, cinnamon in my cappuccino catching me there, Dryden, sorry. <laughs> From two hours ago? But, uh, here we are. I've been sipping away. Uh, based in Newport Beach, California, he's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. We've been having actually a great conversation before we've gotten going. Nice to have you back with us. I love how we're planning to talk about like what's going on across the country. And Carol Master leads it in by like, oh, I just choked on the cinnamon in my cappuccino. <laughs> anyway, it's a different world out there, Dryden Pence. Uh, so, wow. you know, let's talk talk a little bit about what's going on out there in the world. You know, you're going home to Arkansas for mm-hmm. uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. You have such a fascinating background, too. You were a colonel in the Army. Do I have that right? right. Yeah. Uh, you specialize in intelligence and all sorts of things. I have to think you get your ideas maybe a little bit differently than uh, some Excel jockey out there. Well, we actually do. I mean, first of all, you, you can start looking at the data, but it's really important to get out and, and do boots on the ground research and go out into the rest of the country. Some of the things that we do is a couple of times a year, I'll take off the three-piece suit, put on the blue jeans and show up at, at whatever the local watering hole where the UPS and FedEx drivers hang out uh, and listen to how busy they are because they'll, they'll be able to tell you you know, who's busy and who's not and what's happening out there. And if, if, you, if you can look at that, you can tell a lot about a local economy and you can tell a lot about a national economy by just getting out on the ground, get away from the computer, get out in the real world and listen. Because I think that's interesting because I think folks have come back and they said, okay, here we are, those major equity averages hitting record after record, but maybe something like transports, which is up 19%, that's pretty impressive, but they're saying it's not up on the par of you know what we're seeing in the overall broader market and that to them says okay it's not as healthy an economy from what you're seeing boots on the ground research where are we well i think that the 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 bottom line is there are two million more people working today than there were this time last year Mm -hmm. i mean you know we we've really begun to see a continued job growth and that many more people working making a salary if you've got a job your christmas is going to be better for your family this year than it was last year so you're beginning to see that work its way through the economy work its way through the entire part of the country and that makes a difference so the big fundamental thing we see is that the fundamental economy is doing well consumers doing well more people working making more money than ever before two million more people on on a payroll it's as simple as that it's as simple as that so what about something like the big macro like u.s china trade how do you factor that in or do you we look at right now we look at trade wars end i've said that before and we think that what's going to happen the u.s china trade deal eventually it's over i mean we have they have a pea shooter we have a bazooka and and we're going to win and the the point of the matter is is are we going to get some headline volatility about that between now and then the Chinese tried to slow roll the president, and they, you know, they made a deal, then they backed away. They made a deal, and they backed away. And I think they got some bad information uh, from their various consulates. They have six consulates. Uh, you know, they have New York, Washington, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Houston. Well, at five of those six, if you're having on the cocktail party circuit, you don't think that President Trump is going to win re-election. And so what happens is they probably got some bad information. And it's not about the re-election per se, but it's whether or not they're going to be able to get away with slow rolling the Mm. president. I don't think they can, and I don't think they have time. Every day that this goes on, we get stronger, they get weaker. And so sooner or later, this China thing ends, 
this headline volatility around it is going to bounce around the market. But as we move into next year, we see a strengthening U.S. economy. We see trade friction abate. They need to make a deal worse than we do. And that bodes very well for the American consumer and American businesses. So let's synthesize those two things into talking about some names that may or may not be exposed at the moment. But if they're not exposed to U.S.-China trade, you know, may be poised to do some good things. Talk to me about Walmart. I think what's very interesting, particularly in this holiday season, is Walmart is actually beginning to really get its positioning on e-commerce. Mm. And 25% of the country gets their groceries at Walmart. They're going to this place every 25%. Week. 25%. And so now when you think about that, Walmart is being able to gradually move into e-commerce, expand that. They're going to be able to be a rival to Amazon over time, we think. I actually sent one of our guys to do some boots on the ground uh, research in Houston. as said, like, go, go to Walmart, buy the PCE shop basket see if they'll deliver it to the car how does all that work and then wow. then when you're done it's Thanksgiving so give it to a homeless shelter and 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 that's what they did but it, it was a flawless experience for him and so he, he went and and they've got it down and that's important in the process of consumer activity and so Walmart has been able to really begin to take their expertise uh, and, and move it towards this omni-channel experience with a, with a customer where you're in the store, you're in the car, you're online, mm -hmm. you're everywhere. So we think that if someone's going to be able to uh, rival Amazon in e-commerce, it'll gradually be Walmart. All right. So we were talking about Amazon a little while ago and Amazon versus all birds. And obviously sneakers is a very specific uh, niche here. But, you know, where do you put Amazon in your basket at this point, as it were, pun intended? Uh, and and how do you think about it as a stock? We still like it. It's one of our largest uh, holdings that will continue to be one of our largest holdings. Mm -hmm. uh, but is it the retail play? Is it the cloud play? What What is it? I, I think it's the play around they know so much more about the American consumer than anybody else. They know what you're going to buy almost before you buy it. And because of that, they're always probably have the ability. This goes back to being an intelligence officer. If you kind of know what people are going to do in advance, you can be there in front of it. And so Amazon has all this information that they can glean and they can use and they can be ahead of the consumer psyche and they can exploit that and take advantage Does of it. Does it get them in trouble, though, especially with tech? Tech lash, we talk about it so much. Does it get them into trouble, Dryden? I don't think people are going to throw away their mobile phones. I don't think people are going to give up on the convenience of being able to get what they need. Uh, I think actually, uh, when you think about it, some of the fastest users of these things are senior citizens because now they can they don't have to go out and go shopping anymore. Mm -hmm. Everything can be delivered to them. So this this transformation of the consumer experience plays right into what what uh, Amazon is dominant in. I don't, unless everybody's going to go take your mobile device and go throw it in the river, they're going to be dominant for a very right. long time. I know we don't have time, but I know MasterCard Visa kind of plays into this, right? Because somebody's got to do all the transactions. Yeah. Absolutely. 85% of all the transactions in the U.S., 96% of all of them in Europe, uh, the payment systems. They're going are, through these are, guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Great to catch up as always. Have a happy Thanksgiving uh, there back home Safe in travels. Arkansas. Dryden Pence, Chief Investment Officer, Pence Capital Management, usually based out in Newport Beach, here with us in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.